Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey there, we've got another great show for you today. We're going to start off with a talk about the archaeology of Kentucky, and that's by a grad student at the University of Kentucky, Karen Stevens. And then I'll be telling you about the 10 things we've learned about the planet Earth during the pandemic. So let's get right to it. Here is Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science, introducing our guest archaeologist. This was part of their Bench Talk Live series. Take it away, Amanda. Karen Stevens will be our first speaker this evening. Karen is a researcher at University of Kentucky, an archaeologist. Karen studies archaic hunter-gatherers in the Green River Valley in Kentucky. She's particularly interested in gender relationships, so I hope she'll tell us more about that. She's using isotope analysis to study the paleo environment and looking at things like hunting, fishing, and shellfish gathering to give us some insight into gender relationships at those sites. So I'm happy to hear more about that. I'm very excited to see all the different ways that um, different kinds of scientific tools are used for your research and inquiry. So thanks for joining us. Give everybody Karen's friends. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Bench Talk. I'm going to start today with a land acknowledgement to combat the myth that Kentucky was a dark and bloody ground or that it was only used as a hunting ground. I acknowledge that the land on which I sit here in Georgetown, Kentucky, is the traditional territory of the Cherokee, the Shawnee, and the Osage people and has been occupied by many other indigenous groups before them for whom we do not know their names. So I am a PhD candidate at the University of Kentucky. I also um, currently work for the Kentucky Heritage Council, which is the State Historic Preservation Office. As Amanda mentioned, I'm working on my dissertation on shell middens found in the Green River, and you guys are going to see a couple of things that I've done out on the Green River. So to start, I would like to lay the groundwork, and there's a little bit of a pun intended there, A lot of archaeology's basic principles are based on geology, the soil sciences, and general survey. As part of the identification of archaeological sites, we use the basic principle of stratigraphy, which tells us about how different strata were laid down through time. We also use soil texture and color, organic composition, and chemical makeup to learn more about the geologic history, as well as the human history of an archaeological site. By combining these geologic principles and techniques together with the cultural materials that archaeologists are known for, we can learn not only about the site's geologic history, but also about the people that left these cultural materials behind. This is my um, dissertation site, and we have over a meter worth of deposits, and sometimes when you're excavating, As you're going down, you don't really see patterns, but once you take a step back and look at the wall profile, 
you can see the complicated stratigraphy that was made by the humans that were occupying this land. So for example, we have individual shell lenses from people probably throwing out baskets of shellfish, as well as this right here, which is a trash pit that had a lot of different shell and animal bone. And then as well as you can see disturbances like modern animal burrows. But most importantly, this is all about the people. Although we might talk about the chemistry or the artifacts, it all boils down to what does that tell us about the people. This is our Kentucky timeline of time periods. Today I'm going to focus on the Paleo-Indian period and Kentucky was occupied at least by 9,500 BC, although they probably were here before that. We have the Archaic Period, which as you can see, not all time periods are created equal. And then I will also talk about the Woodland Period a little bit. So first, the Paleo-Indian Period. By the time that people arrived in Kentucky, the mid-continental glaciers had already retreated northward into Canada. And while the climate was warming from the Ice Age, it was still colder and wetter than what we experience today. These people that lived and moved through Kentucky in this period would have seen a different landscape as well, with colder spruce forest moving northward as the period went on. Here in Kentucky, we have over 350 Paleo-Indian sites that have been documented. And this is a very low number because the environment during this period was undergoing so much change that the sites are very deeply buried. So our record of the people who lived during this time period are pretty sparse, and what we know about it actually comes from um, the region around us, the states around us. These people, though, that lived here were highly mobile and traveled in small groups of 20 to 50 people. And much of what we know about these mobile hunters and gatherers comes from the items that they left behind, including spear points like these over here on the right. And these spears were used to hunt big game like deer, elk, and bison. But as with the following time periods, um, the ones that came after, they also ate nuts and berries and made clothing and tools from animal hides, plant fibers, and animal bones. So how do we know what we know about Paleo-Indian period and how people used lithic tools, which are rock tools, from this period, since that's what we have mostly from this period. We have use wear studies. So by looking at a point or an other lithic tool, we can look for polish or breaking or rounding of a stone and paired with experimental uses of stone, we can determine how the tool was used, whether it was butchering, grass cutting, woodworking, or all of the above. And these are just um, experimental use wear images of a lithic point before and then after 2000 stroke, uh, cutting strokes, butchering stroke. Moving into the next period, the Archaic is one of the longest periods here in Kentucky, like I showed you on that timeline, and has been extensively studied. So far, we have recorded over 3,000 Archaic period sites for this time period that lasted around 7,000 years. The climate during the Archaic period was very similar to what we experience today. 
and rivers were stabilizing, wetlands were becoming more common. So there are a lot of different resources that people could um, get their food, get their tools from. There was also an increase in populations, but people that lived during this period still maintained a relatively mobile lifestyle. They would travel up and down river systems. So as you can see from this density map, there's a high density of sites right here, and this is along the Green River, which I'll be talking about some today. This period is also noted for its diversification in technology. So hunters in the archaic period were using spear throwers, which are called atlatls, and this is a picture of a modern atlatl. They were hunting deer, squirrel, turkey, they were eating fish, turtles, and many different plants like blackberries and hickory nuts. All of these were part of their um, daily and seasonal cuisine. Ground stone tool technology also became um, important during this time period. And we also see more use of local church or rock for these projectile points. And we call them projectile points because they were at the end of a spear, not at the end of a bow or an arrow. Here, we see this ground stone tool. This is actually polished. And this is from it being used probably to process plants. This is an example of a projectile point using a local shirt. Archaeologists are also able to use 3D technology these days to record, analyze, and share artifacts. And this is an oversimplification of this particular project that's being done by a, another UK grad student. But here a point is being scanned in, 3D model is being made, and that 3D model is helping her make measurements more accurately of these archaic period points. Knowing your biology also comes into play for faunal analysis specialists. So this is a small sample of faunal remains from my dissertation site, and it shows that the indigenous people that lived here collected and very likely ate freshwater gastropods, as well as large mammals like deer, fish, this is a fish vertebra, and turtle. This is a turtle femur. While today destructive analysis is usually limited, there are still opportunities to use physical and chemical techniques to learn more about these artifacts. In this case, again with my dissertation site, I used x-ray diffraction to, to determine that this freshwater mussel, which is a three-horn wartyback, even though it's a couple of thousand years old, that it hasn't undergone a chemical reorganization of carbonite, which in simpler terms means the shell's still made out of what it originally was made out of. And so that means I can use it for isotopic analysis. Another tool that I've used and many archaeologists in Kentucky have used is remote sensing. This is an example of LIDAR, which is a method of measuring distances by illuminating the target with laser light and measuring the reflection with a sensor. So basically, lasers are pointed at the ground and it tells you more about the landforms today, what the topography looks like today. But when we overlay it with a historic aerial photo, we can get a sense of how the landscape was used more recently. As you see here, there is a barn, and I believe this is either a grain bin or an oil rig. 
since a lot of today focuses not on digging up everything, but rather finding out more without ever touching a site because we don't want to destroy the sites because we never know what new technology will be created in the future. We like to use remote sensing like ground penetrating radar, radiometry, and in this case, magnetometry to learn more about what is underneath the ground. So again, this is at that site. Here's a blown up version of the aerial with the barn or the house. We lay on the magnetometry results and we see two concentrations. So magnetometry shows you anomalies where the magnetic field of the dirt has switched from its normal field. And so these two groupings of anomalies are actually two archaic period Shilmadin sites. And this black square right here is actually one of my excavation units. One of the coolest things that I think we have ever learned about combining archaeology with other sciences is about the Eastern Agricultural Complex. The Eastern Agricultural Complex region is here in the, the Mid-South, the Midwest. This is an area that is one of the handful of independent centers of domestication, of plant domestication. By the late archaic and then moving into the early woodland period, Native Americans had collected plants and they were using it for their food and they ended up domesticating these plants. And that includes goosefoot, sunflower, marsh elder, and squash. So goosefoot, or it's also called quinopod or lamb's quarter, is actually a close relative to quinoa. So it was basically an early grain that people would have used for food. And the squash that was domesticated here includes winter squashes like acorn squash and crookneck squash and those types of things. We have quinopod over here on the right, acorn squash, and then you hear from my garden, we got native bees on a sunflower. We know how long ago these plant remains were collected by people here from radiocarbon dating. In this case, the sunflower seed was found here in Kentucky and um, it's been radiocarbon dated to about 3,200 years before present, so a long time ago. We also know that these select plants were grown as domesticates from their specific morphology. So in this case, scanning electron microscopes have scanned the different domesticated versus wild plant. So over here we have unique vertical striations on the sunflower seed. And then over here we're comparing a modern pot with domesticated versions. And as you can see, there are certain areas that look very different. Some of these domesticated plants are now called lost crops because over time their cultivation declined and was eventually abandoned as other crops like corn and beans moved in. In the case of quinopod, which like I said is related to quinoa, we know from ancient DNA that people here, here in Kentucky, here in this Mid-South region, domesticated these crops and not elsewhere. They didn't move in from Mexico. We actually had them right here. By studying these quote-unquote lost crops, we can learn and contribute to present-day discussions on indigenous food sovereignty and the restoration of traditional tribal foodways. So really interesting, cool little plant. With our entrance into the woodland period, people became much more settled. You start to see 
villages and things like that. And with the domestication of those plants, we move from people being hunters and gatherers to people being hunter, gatherers, and gardeners. We also start to see ceramics and earthen mound enclosures here in Kentucky. And these earthen mound enclosures were made by the Adena culture, people that belong to the Adena culture. And again, using that remote sensing, we learn a whole lot more than we would ever just from excavation. So here's a LIAR image of Adena Hopewell earthen enclosures here in central Kentucky, and this is actually Fayette County. And when paired with other remote sensing methods like magnetic imagery, we can learn so much more. The Woodland period also had a greater use of caves in Kentucky. Twelve samples that were found were tested for levels of testosterone and estradiol, and it showed that they were all probably deposited there by males. So not only did the scientists learn about what native crops and wild plants the people were eating, they also learned that the caves here in Mammoth Cave were probably being used by males, probably for um, ritual use, but also for mining different minerals that can be found on the cave walls. Our dry caves and rock shelters here in Kentucky also give us great preservation of organic materials that normally, after thousands of years, would have deteriorated. By using light microscopy, researchers were able able to take a flipper that is similar to this one. This one was found elsewhere, somewhere else, but is a very similar slipper. They were able to compare that with modern plants and determined it was made out of Rattlesnake Master, which is a native plant here in Kentucky. Items like these not only tell us more about what Native Americans wore, but they also tell us more about the process of how someone went, picked that plant fiber, and made it into an article of clothing. So that's the end of my talk. I am open to questions. Wow, thanks, Karen. That is fascinating. My my brain is exploding a little bit. It's very exciting to see how many different things that archaeologists have to know about, like how many different kinds of science you're actually integrating into what you do. And I just think it's fascinating. I have like one little agricultural question, and Dave Robinson has another agricultural question. <laughs> you did not mention corn beans or tobacco, and Dave's wondering, were there any signs of those? Yes. So corn, beans, and tobacco come in later in that Mississippian period that I didn't cover. The corn and beans start to move in at the late woodland period around 800 AD, and they come in up through Central America, and then that's what starts to replace those native crops. Excellent. Um, so the ones that you mentioned were sort of predecessors, like culinary predecessors, I was particularly fascinated by the kinopod because I have just a lot of lamb's quarters in my garden right now going to seed. And I'm wondering how much, like you mentioned it, that it was a lost crop, but does that mean that there is no modern counterpart? Like, is it essentially an extinct species or how much do we know about that? So the native form of it can be found in places that, haven't been occupied by people um, in a while uh, right now in sort of, I think it's in swampy areas, like not swamp swamp, but like in ditches by the side of the road. 
Most of the lamb's quarter that we have today is a species that's actually come in. It's not the exact same species. The native cultigen of that particular uh, kenopod is much rarer, but it can be used the same way. Are those seeds being saved and cultivated a little bit so that that can be continued or preserved or we can keep learning about that plant? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's actually... Down in Arkansas, there's a, a native garden that they have where they have native cultigens planted and every year they harvest those so that they can get more. And there are people doing studies where they'll actually plant whole fields and they learn about how people harvested the grains, you know, how long does it take to do all of this because we like to talk about how, how much effort has to go into a crop so yeah, people are still are working on growing the native stuff out there. Wow. That is really interesting. So there's one more question. Are there any signs of petroglyphs or other artwork? Yes, there are a lot of petroglyphs and artwork out here in Kentucky. Both Mammoth Cave and the Red River Gorge area are, they're just really special archeology span places that we have here in Kentucky. Both of them have petroglyphs, so uh, a lot of the petroglyphs are tracks, of, like bird tracks, animal tracks, there are directional spirals and things like that. There's also um, one of the petroglyphs out in Red River Gorge is of a turtle. Um, there's also other artwork that is painted on. For that, they, people used ochre and charcoal as sort of coloring agents. So things like that are out there for sure. That is fascinating. Thank you so much. I feel like we've just kind of scratched the surface. After I started doing that, I was like, I could do an hour presentation on each one of the periods. <laughs> but what a great introduction to folks of all disciplines about how many different things are integrated into um, the work of archaeologists. So a great lesson for all of us in different disciplines. So thank you so much for that. Thanks for listening. That was Karen Stevens, a graduate student in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Kentucky. She gave this online talk on archaeology and science in Kentucky as part of the Bench Talk Live series being put on by the Kentucky Academy of Science. Amanda Fuller, executive director of KAS, was moderating this talk. And if you want to see the PowerPoint slides that went along with the talk, just do an internet search for Bench Talk Live and you'll find the web page there. We'll also put a link on our Facebook and SoundCloud pages too. Thanks so much to Karen Stevens for filling us in on the ancient history of this amazing region and telling us about the incredible people who lived here before colonization. Change of topic. I recently ran across a provocative article in the e-news magazine called Vox, and I wanted to tell you about it today. The title of the article is 10 Things We've Learned About Earth Since the Last Earth Day. And of course, Earth Day has been celebrated every April for the past 51 years, and the authors of this article, it was Benji Jones and Brian Anderson, they wrote this perhaps as a reminder that even though we're experiencing the worst public health crisis in a century, the planet Earth is still here. 
it's just as vulnerable and as mysterious as ever. So, here it is with some additions on my part. The 10 things that we've learned about Earth this past year. Number one, because of the pandemic, there was a big drop in human-made noises in the ocean this year. Researchers have reported that underwater noise in the northern Pacific Ocean off the coast of Vancouver, Canada, was about half as loud in April of 2020 as it was two years before. And that was probably due to a slowdown in shipping traffic. Now, these underwater noises generated by the industrialization of our oceans is thought to have a detrimental effect on marine life. For instance, when shipping traffic slowed after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 back in 2001, there was a measurable decline in stress hormone levels in marine animals living in the ocean waters off the east coast of the United States. And even tiny fish larvae are able to better understand their location in the water when the oceans get quiet. Number two. The pandemic has pointed out the important role that ecotourism plays in protecting wildlife. The impact appeared to be greatest in Africa, where the drop in tourist dollars resulted in a 50% cut in field patrols and other operations designed to stop wildlife poaching. Not only were there fewer people to keep an eye on the wildlife parks, but there was more economic pressure on locals to actually poach animals. Number three, wildfire smoke can turn the sky an apocalyptic orange color. It was in September of 2020 that we saw the haunting images of the orange sky over the city of San Francisco. 2020 was the worst fire year on record for California, some 10,000 fires devastating 4% of the entire state. It was 4 million acres of land on fire. And the particles of soot in the smoke that was put into the air was really good at absorbing and reflecting back the blue wavelengths of light that the sun emits, but letting the orange wavelengths of light through. And there was something else going on in San Francisco at that time. Fog and water vapor, which is what fog is, that scatters light in all different direction. And that diffusion effect of the water vapor contributed to this eerie, omnipresent orange color of the sky that you might have seen in pictures of San Francisco back in September. It sort of looked like the set of a Blade Runner movie. Now, the authors of this article in Vox also mentioned that there were some important discoveries that were published during the pandemic. After all, science does have a way of marching on. That leads to number four. It's just been reported that the Amazon forest is probably contributing to overall global warming rather than global cooling. That's actually the opposite of what most people would think. The main culprit human activities like deforestation. Sure, growing trees are the best thing out there for absorbing atmospheric carbon dioxide. That's through the process of photosynthesis. But deforestation packs a double punch. It eliminates those very trees that are photosynthesizing. But then when the wood is burned, or if it just naturally rots, all of that carbon in the wood gets re-released back into the atmosphere 
as carbon dioxide. Number five, some fascinating new species have been identified for the first time this year. For instance, a new species of baleen whale has recently been discovered in the Gulf of Mexico. There's a new chameleon that's been discovered in Madagascar, and it might be the smallest known reptile in the world. And there's more than 200 other new species that were first described in 2020, including ants, crickets, fish, geckos, sea slugs, snakes, spiders, mosses, and even some flowering plants. Well, it looks like we aren't going to get through the whole list of 10 things we learned about the planet this year, as listed by Fox Magazine. So I'll fill you in on the rest next week. Stay tuned till then. As you know, you've been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. Keep it scientific.